Hello and welcome to Standing in the Stream, a podcast for and about creative people. I'm your host, John Lane. I'm thrilled to have composer and mad scientist of music Mark Applebaum on the show today. Mark is definitely one of the most creative and intelligent people I've ever met, but in a way that is disarming and approachable. His music not only breaks rules, but really goes beyond even the idea of rules. And a perfect example of that would be this piece, the Concerto for Florist and Orchestra. Performer, improviser, instrument designer and builder, jazz pianist, Mark wears many hats as an artist. I would also consider his beautifully hand-drawn scores to be works of visual art. As an educator, Mark is Associate Professor of Composition and Theory at Stanford, You can explore his music and find out more about his work on his website, markapplebaum.com. Mark, welcome to the show. Thanks. It's great to be here. So I I like to get started here at the beginning of the show by kind of taking a look back, perhaps at some formative experience. So, and feel free to take us back wherever you'd like, but I'd like to know a little bit about, you know, like how you got started. And you could talk about how you got started in music or how you got started as a composer, kind of wherever you'd like to go with that. Sure. So, I mean, my formal music education uh, began, I suppose, when I was seven years old and I started taking piano lessons and that was piano lessons in a classical idiom. Uh, and I enjoyed that. And, and Well, I, I loved that and hated it, I guess. Um, I had, you know, mixed feelings about it, but it was important to me for many years. And then in high school, I got into a, a rock band playing synthesizer keyboards, and and that was important to me musically. But I think looking back, it was actually I realized in retrospect it was more important um, as a kind of social project that it was really a way of as an awkward teenager who just didn't feel like he fit in anywhere, having something that was sort of important and uh, entrepreneurial among a bunch of friends, a bunch of classmates who were getting together to do something. So that was, you know, that was, um, I mean, to be just totally glib about it, that was sort of like, I I realized I didn't want to die a virgin. And so, you know, that, that was sort of an important undertaking, I think, socially. And then it wasn't until college that I started to, um, to compose. I mean, I'd been making up things, as a kid, um, all the time. And I wrote like a kind of a, a pop rock musical in high school and so forth. But it wasn't really until college that I got a little bit more serious about thinking of myself as a composer. But even at that point, I didn't think of myself as having, uh, as looking towards having a career professionally in composition. Um, and I, you know, I, my, my, when I look back to my education in college, what was so important about it was that it was a, a really broad liberal arts education, and I was taking as much and more not music as I was taking music in terms of my you know curricular um, engagement. Um, and that persists to this day where I feel like I am a composer who's sort of a reluctant composer in some ways. I, my composition projects are often thinly veiled um, sort of like attempts to do not music. So um, it's a way of it's a way of um, exploring other parts of the world. In other words, that liberal arts education extends today through the pieces that I compose, which allow me to investigate all sorts of other things um, beyond music, which is like 
maybe this is a little bit of an occupational hazard, but it's like music is fundamentally boring to me. Um, that's a, I guess that's a bit radical to say, but um, I'm, I'm like, or I, let's put it this way, I'm tired of myself with respect to music. And so I look for ways of sort of like um, rehabilitating myself or reanimating my engagement with the, uh, with the human experience through ways of tethering music to other things. And as you mentioned in your, in your kind and very generous introduction that, you know, like that, that has like uh, ramifications in visual art, for example, in my musical scores and the sound sculptures that I build and, and, and furthermore in sort of choreography and music theater with various other kinds of formulations. But it also manifests itself in like a piece like Asylum, which I composed for the Vienna Modern Festival around 2004, 2005 or so. And that's a piece that explores psychological disorders in sound, which was a chance for me to study psychology, which is nothing, something I've never studied formally. Or a piece like The Blue Cloak for the Antwerp-based ensemble Chambre d'Action is a piece that looks at a particular uh, painting by the Renaissance painter Peter Bruegel. And so it allowed me to you know, kind of spend half a year or a year looking at, in depth at, at, at this, these kind of so-called build paintings from that era, or the, a piece for Zeitgeist um, that was, in a sense, about architecture and let me look at Lewis Sullivan. So again, all of these things, whether it's a kind of an orbiting research topic or a, a foray into a medium that's, that is somehow surrounds or orbits or an, is ancillary to music, you know, I use composition as a as a way to kind of expand my universe, and and again, that's out of largely out of dissatisfaction and boredom. But I but now I've answered a question you didn't ask, and I realize I've been somewhat garrulous here, and I I should go back to the, your, your question about getting started. So I mean, I I, I you know, um, the start again was about classical piano, I guess, looking way way back, and it was also about um, just being curious about things as a kid. So and I think all kids have that. I don't think I was exceptional in that regard, but I just love to tinker with things and look at things and ask questions about what if. And then I think also the other part of the sort of genetic code of my, uh, you know, artistic outlook has to do with being curious that has manifested itself in, you know, in, in a quite a bit of travel. So I've, I really, my wife and I have been really fortunate to visit some 70 or more countries in the world and um, there was just a feeling from quite early on growing up in suburban Chicago that I really wanted to see something other. I, I, again, that was a little bit out of boredom and dissatisfaction. It was like, there must be something else. There must be other people who live life in other ways, and I want to know about that. You actually hit upon something that, that is quite um, close to my own sort of... Uh reason for doing this show, which is getting in touch with a variety of creative people. Well, I'm trying to, how can I articulate this? You articulated it so beautifully. Uh, but I, I feel the same way about music. I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm not, I don't know if I'm tired of, of music as it, as it is. Uh, what did you say your relationship to, how did you, how did you say it? Um, you know, I, I'm not. I, you know, I don't remember what I said. Okay, <laughs> I'll have to go back and listen. But... It's like you know, I'm sort of. I, it's, this is just like um, when I played jazz piano and I improvised. People are like, oh, what was that? Like, I'm like, I have no idea. That was that was eight seconds ago. I'll never be able to recreate. That. Yeah, but but, <laughs> but I can't. But I but I will. But I could extend it and and put it another way, which is that I think 
for, I, I'm guessing for you, John, and for me, there is, there is like, there are kind of like these initial kind of childlike sense of wonderment with music and a real excitement and engagement and something wonderfully naive and sort of pure about that. And there's this feeling that, you know, one can't help but, but lose that to some extent through the course of, of engagement as a professional and um, through experiences that aren't all about wonder and aren't so great. And so we try to optimize some weird return to that, trying to um, get back to that sense. And of course it's impossible because, you know, we've changed, the world changes and so forth. So it's not fair to ask for that kind of um, joy, but, but rather to find some different kind of joy. And for me, that's, that's taken on uh, that for me my solution to that has has been to um kind of like just look for new things and and just find some sort of satisfaction in probing the unknown and um, and, and that all sounds very like uh, by the way when i say like probing the unknown that sounds that's a little bit haughty and self-congratulatory i mean it's really it's not that i'm like finding some sort of new musical truth that I'm sharing with the universe, but rather that these are, this is the unknown for me. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's just stuff that I don't know that maybe uh, others, others have already discovered. And so, but for me, it's, it's, it's still a, a kind of a journey and investigation that reanimates that quasi childlike sense of, wonder in music. I don't, I don't know if putting it that way speaks to you as well. It does, and, and, and those qualities certainly come across in your music. I, I think one of the things that initially drew me to um, your music was was that that resonance with ideas and other arts, not not even other arts, but just ideas, you know, that the piece you have, Aphasia, where it where it uses all of these hand gestures, and, and then the piece that we did, uh, your, your percussion piece, the Oh yeah, thirty. Thirty, where where we have, uh, you know, at the end of that, the quartet version of that piece, where you have all these hand gestures, and I mean, I just I found resonance there with with that, uh, with this, with just ideas, and that's it's really exciting to get to work with that music. Um, we did cool. your your piece with the three conductors for three conductors. I did that with my students here, and that still has been. I mean, that was a few years ago, and that's still the piece that the students talk about. Uh, because it was just so far outside of their wheelhouse, but related to what they do, you know, and so it was such a great experience to to work on. That's something that your music brings is uh, a chance to work through ideas and work with ideas, and that, that I think that's really important. Oh, I'm, well, I'm, I'm delighted to hear that, and 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 um, you know, and and I'm specifically grateful um, to you and for your students for drafting my music. But in general, I mean, this is a you know, a partnership or sort of like a, a mutual journey. And it's just, I'm just incredibly gratified and, and, and to be honest, somewhat and still shocked that there are people who are interested in, in, you know, undertaking these kinds of weird um, musical enterprises that I come up with. I mean, I'm not, the, the point is that uh, there's certain things that I can do by myself, but there's, um, but that's, that's limited in, in emotional ways and in terms of you know, technical scale and all sorts of things. And so I, I rely on people like you and others who, who have this kind of creative need as well to explore things. And, and, and I'll also say that there's, you know, there's a lot of people who have contributed to that sort of investigation with me, that mutual sort of journey. 
and I'm grateful to all of them. They are, of course, while there are a lot of them over the years that have championed my music, they are, there's no question also that they're a subset, uh, a little tiny minority of, of musicians for whom a lot of my music is insulting or just absurd or ridiculous in a sense. And, and, um, and that's okay. It's like not, not all music has to appeal to all people. Right. Um, so I'm just, I'm just, I, I'm just sort of pinch myself and can't believe that it's actually happening that, that more than zero people are interested in music. <laughs> well, you know, there's this, there's this great quote from Stockhausen that I read years ago that said, he said something, uh, I, I might butcher it, but he said something to the effect of that music exists like a tree, and whether you like to sit in its shade or not doesn't really matter. The tree exists. Um, I mean, Stockhausen obviously has, um, or, you know, while he was living, he had uh, eventually tremendous cachet, and if he wanted to do something even as outlandish as, as, as some of his, you know, projects are, I mean, they're really, uh, and I don't say that pejoratively, but, I mean, they're like, sometimes they involve, you know, string players flying in a helicopter. Right. They, they, they take some doing is the point. Yeah. And, you know, he got, he, you know, he had the cachet and the the agency, I should say, to actually make those things happen. So yeah, the pieces exist whether you sit in the shade or the not. The tree exists whether you sit in the shade or not. But what if it's a piece that um, only that only exists, you know, on a score in my desk drawer unless I find somebody else. And so I, you know, without the sort of um, presumption that maybe Stockhausen was able to finally have, um, I, I, you know, I I'm, I still mar- I still marvel that there's somebody who's interested in this. But again, it isn't. It's a niche thing, you know. We're a we're a, we're kind of a click, and 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 you know pieces of my, like the piece that you mentioned, Flynn, for three conductors and no players, that appeals to some to some people and uh, and and not to others. And um, so some people who might like what you know be interested in one kind of piece of mine might not be interested in another. That's an interesting case, that particular piece, because it's I think that um, like kind of card carrying conductors have been the most averse to it. I mean, I haven't had a performance by. Uh, somebody who 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 started out and defined themselves mostly and mainly as a conductor, um, and I think that's because con- conductors think that this is really an insult to their profession, their their job, which is to sort of bring forth a sound, and that's a sound that's a piece that's that's almost entirely silent. Yeah, I I think maybe maybe you'll agree. Conductors, I would say, are mostly. I mean, they're interpreters, though, not not creators. And and your piece needs a sort of creative. Uh, it's not an. It's not simply an interpretation because you're. Well, I suppose you're interpreting. You know, your instructions in terms of tempos and, you know, all of the musical instructions. But you have to imagine, the sounds because there are no sounds. So they're they're just the sounds in your head for, in that piece. And so it takes sort of a pretty creative performer. Uh, not to say that compo- uh, you know conductors are not creative, but it's it's an interpretive uh, quality that I think maybe right. is the prized thing in conducting rather than an inventive quality. Do you would you agree with that? Well, I would I, I would ag- I would partly agree. I mean, there's no question that it does take a special creative player, and there is a different kind of act of creation in that piece. I, I'm agreeing with you with that, and it certainly takes a player who has that kind of interest in whimsy and a certain kind of gumption and a willingness to engage in something that on the surface seems a bit absurd. So all of those 
quality. You need some special qualities, and they're especially creative ones. I agree with that. But I, I do think that m many conductors think of describe what they're doing as actually imagining a sound in their head, and then in a sense they're bringing it forth. They're kind of creating that sound. Yeah. Um, of course, they get the feedback of of the aural realization of that sound, which yeah. they can then which then forms a feedback loop, and they respond to that. And so I don't give them that because it's, it remains imagined in their head. So yeah. uh, anyway, I, uh, you know, I, I have tremendous respect for, con for conductors, so I don't want to, like, you know, diss them. No, not at all. Um, but, le but let's actually just turn our attention, if I can just kind of switch the conversation to, for a moment. And I'll, I'll just say something that is downright um, ostentatious or offensive to the, to the majority of uh, of musicians, and that is, I'm just going to go on record and say, percussionists are the best. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, it, I, I'm absolutely, you know, grateful for flutists and violinists are just tremendous, and trumpet players, fantastic. Um, but, you know, just face it, percussionists are the best. Um, I'm they, glad you threw the trumpet player thing in there. Amanda would be upset otherwise, so... <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for that. No, they're all they're they're all great, but it's, so I'm 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 being I'm being you know obviously very reckless in making this pronouncement. But like the point is, um, and it's not that perc percussion, of course, is great because like timbrely, it's so diverse. So that's fantastic in and of itself. But that's not what I mean. What I mean is that in general, percussionists are just constructed in a certain way, which just appeals to me as a composer. They they tend to they just they like all sorts of challenges. They like diverse challenges. They like to reinvent themselves. When many players say, look, this is what I do, write me a piece like this, professionals will say, look, this is what I do. Whatever you do, don't make me do that again. Yeah. Make me do something completely different. Make it weird. Make it hard. You know, I mean, there's the folks in the orchestra who have to play a duck call. When the piece calls for a duck call, they have to play it. The duck call, as far as I can tell, is a wind instrument. So, you know, but... They get to do it, and the reason is they get to do everything. They play like you know routinely dozens of instruments in a single piece, and that's just not the case with most other instrumentals. So I just I like that spirit. Now I'm not talking about your like crazy orchestral timpanists who get time and a half if they strike a triangle once. Uh, they're a discredit to the profession as far as I'm concerned. And I'm also not talking about like those diva marimba soloists who refer, refuse to play anything other than marimba. I'm talking about like your your crazy multi-percussionist uh, um, kind of characters who just who that who then it's not a leap for them to say yeah there's an acting role in this fine there's a speaking role in this fine and in the case of like you know my pieces there are, there's something where I have to do like hand gestures fine I have to draw something on amplified easels no problem you want me to chop carrots in concert not not an issue you know so this is the kind of this you know and then of course you want me to conduct a piece that makes no sound? I'm there. So I've, I've actually had more percussionists conduct fun than than certainly than than you know than anybody than any other kind of instrument. Yeah, there, there's a whole uh, repertoire, a whole subset of the music world where these things you know wouldn't get performed if there weren't percussionists. There's a Paul Schuette, composer and instrument designer builder. He uh, has a piece where he makes these sort of homemade oscillators. And we, we featured it at the Percussive Art Society convention because I, I felt pretty strongly that if 
you know, if we didn't feature this piece and if percussionists didn't play it, who's going to play it? You know, exactly. I, and that's so, right. I, you know, well, I, that's cool. That's great. So that, and, that I, t- and I like the percussionists, you know, they annex everything as percussion. And I, as a composer, I annex everything as music. I mean, so like, you know, having a florist soloist and my piece rabbit hole involves players, you know, um, you know, a bunch of different instrumentals on all sorts of things, moving across the, the stage from among different positions. Everyone is assigned to different positions, and they're constantly picking up instruments and getting ready to play them and putting them down without actually playing them. Um, and this is, and you know, Steve Schicks, who conducted the premiere with the San Francisco Contemporary Music Players, said something which I thought I really loved. It was really you know close to my heart. He said, "But well, we should never let sound get in the way of the music." So you know, I, I'm 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 okay with the idea that music doesn't even have to make sound. So uh, although, by the way, just for the record, also I like music that makes sound, and I'm still <laughs> still still dedicated to that as well. Yeah. Um, but you know, I'm a, the point is I'm a composer who 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 wants to who is optimistic that like everything can be seen through the lens of music, and I think similarly, you know, if you're going to play some oscillators and you see that as percussion music, then that's great. Yeah. I, and I, I'll mention one other thing, which is that there, I have this piece called aphasia for, you know, these hand gestures synchronized to pre-recorded sound. It was thought to be a, a, an impossible piece and that it couldn't be done. And so after, after I was told that by um, the, you know, initial performer um, who, who who didn't do it, who couldn't do it as I had written it, I, I took it as like a, a, a kind of like a challenge so that I learned that piece. And, um, and, it, and and he was actually right. It was, near, it was nearly impossible, uh, or he was almost right. And it was it's a very demanding, challenging piece. But I made a video of myself putting it up, and I thought that would uh, yeah, I put that up on the web. I thought that would be the end of it. But then, lo and behold, a percussionist here and a percussionist, or I should say, I reveal I, I I didn't tell the story right. A performer here and a performer there, and then a third, and then a fourth, and so forth. All these performers started playing the piece, and it turns out that this piece, which is hand, just hand gestures. All these performers were percussionists. Now, there has been a few exceptions, and one of the noteworthy ones is that I can think of is Allison Lowell is a virtuoso oboe player, and on her DMA recital, she performed aphasia, which I thought was really cool that, like, you know, she had the moxie to put a hand gesture piece on her solo oboe DMA recital. Wow. So anyway, the point is there are, you know, a shout-out to all of those percussionists who happen to be oboists. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's do a, a little pivot point here and uh, talk about another one of your uh, interests and, and uh, pursuits, which is instrument design and building. Uh, you have a series, uh, I suppose a series of instruments now that you call mousetraps. And um, that's very interesting to me. And, and in fact, maybe we can talk about two different things here. We can talk about your instrument design and then a piece of yours, uh, the metaphysics of notation, because that's one that, that I have recent personal connection and interest in. Uh, that's one of the pieces that we programmed. I mentioned the Percussive Art Society convention this, this last uh, fall. And that was one of the pieces that we wanted to include. We did a whole day of interesting and innovative notations and we we wanted to include a session of your music uh, particularly this piece metaphysics of notation 
And um, when I uh, started studying it, uh, it's, it's available on DVD now. I'll let you sort of describe the piece in a moment, but suffice to say for at the moment that it's available on a DVD format where the score scrolls by on the screen. So I started studying this piece and, you know, looking at my collection of instruments and figuring out, well, you know, I could have this instrument and that instrument, start building a setup and all of this stuff. And it just, it, for some reason, it just didn't feel like I was responding as creatively as possible to this very imaginative graphic uh, score. So I decided to, to, to challenge myself to build my own instrument, uh, also sort of with a wink and a nod to your uh, instruments that you've built, these mouse traps. So I, you know, started looking around, uh, f uh, going to all the antique shops here in town and getting on eBay and finding antique clock coils and music boxes and uh, squeaky wheels and springs and all sort of things like that and uh, ended up building my own instrument, very much inspired by yours, but also inspired by this other guy, Eric Leonardson, uh, who has a sort of a similar looking thing to mine. Um, at any rate, so let's talk about e either one of those as sort of a jumping point. Maybe you can talk about how you got started building your mouse traps, and then maybe we can talk about this massive uh, metaphysics of notation piece. Yeah, sure. Um, well, let's see. This the the sound. I call these instruments that I build sound sculptures. They they have they have like you know beautiful sounds that they make, but they're also intended. They aspire to be kind of arresting works of visual art. Um, and 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 in the Harry Parch sort of tradition, I'm interested in the sort of like the 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 corporeality of the player at the instrument. I mean, I'm interested in the ergonomics of the instrument, so that you can do certain things and things feel a certain way when you play them. Unlike Harry Parch, who, with the exception of a few, like the Zymozil, um, are you know he he mostly had. Um, or maybe the spoils of war. He, for the most part, he he made instruments that were sort of monotandral, but then of course stretched over an enormous um, pitch space and with a very specific kind of um, intonation. You know, mine are more like one-man band approaches, where I have like a whole bunch of different timbres. It's a real, uh, it's just a huge circus of different timbres, but I don't have. Uh, many different pitches and not specific pitches on mine. So anyway, my instruments are these kind of concatenations of junk and hardware and found objects mounted on electroacoustic soundboards. Um, they're made of threaded rods and uh, squeaky wheels and different gauges of nails pounded at different lengths producing different pitches. There's door stops, there's astroturf, there's strings stretched through turnbuckles and uh, and uh, uh, pulleys and things like that, and there's combs whose teeth can be massaged, and there's ratchets and shoehorns and bronze brazing rod twisted with a blowtorch into various shapes and so forth. Um, anyway, there's parts from cars and toilet tank flotation bulbs and all sorts of things. And, um, and I played them with chopsticks and uh, violin bows and knitting needles and wind-up toys and in my hands. And modified sounds with a bank of live electronics. Um, I mean, I can play them. I can, they're they're acoustic instruments. They make cool sounds. I'm usually the only person, and now you, who can play at the like international uh, computer music conference if the power were to go out. Um, 
but they sound really cool when amplified, and then of course with the and they be, they're, thereby they become electroacoustic, and then they become electronic instruments when paired with these optional electronic computer sort of um, circuitry. And so the first one was called the Mousetrap. It had mousetraps on it. It, it. That's probably the least exciting of the sound. It kind of just makes a big snap, but, um, you know, a trigger. But the more important thing, I guess, was the, the sort of, like, adage to build a better mousetrap. And um, so in that regard, I, I was getting started by responding to the person who's the most influential to me is the San Francisco Bay Area um, um instrument builder and improviser, Tom Nunn, who is, a, I mean, a genius as far as I'm concerned. He's just extraordinary. And I found, you know, I was at the University of California at San Diego doing my master's degree and then my PhD. And it was while I was just starting there doing my master's degree that in contrabassist Bert Turetsky's office, I found this instrument called the Bug, which was, that Tom Nunn had built when he was a student doing a master's degree at UCSD maybe a decade prior to my arrival there. And so I found this thing, and I asked if I could borrow it, and I sort of took it home and sort of reverse-engineered it and thought about it. And so in a sense, I built my own better mousetrap. I, I ended up, of course, building just a bigger mousetrap, um, and that created its own problems in terms of getting it to Darmstadt um, one year. But and then, but anyway, the point is that I then developed that idea over many iterations. There is the mini mouse and the duplex mouse phone, and the midi mouse, and six micro mice, and the kinder mouse, and all sorts of other things. So I finally arrived at the Mouseketeer, and that's T-I-E-R, um, because it's on three levels. And I also got smarter in that um, I built the, uh, the, the case for the instrument first. I designed that first based on the maximum airline baggage dimensions, and then built the instrument second. And I guess I'll say one more thing about this project, which is that the Mouseketeer is the most recent instrument. And what I like to tell people is that I'm the world's greatest Mouseketeer player. And this is uh, this is obviously like um, an incredibly egocentric and narcissistic thing to announce, but I'd, I'd like to pair it with something else that I like to tell, which is I'm also the world's worst Mouseketeer player. And that's an extremely important thing to me because panel where I'm neither the world's best or worst and never will be. I'm somewhere in the middle of a continuum of like a billion people. I am, in fact, of course, the only player, which means that I'm functioning effectively in a culture of one, where whereas you can listen to a piano player and you can know, okay, this person is, is beginning or intermediate or advanced. How do you know, you know, what are the what are the kind of values, what are the benchmarks, what are the considerations we make in you know good musketeer playing 
was was that articulation I just made on a doorstop, was it a good articulation? Was that a good doorstop or a bad doorstop? You know, in a culture of one. And so by, by the designation that I'm the worst player, that's actually the more helpful um, realization. It reminds me that by definition I must be a kind of a beginner. And I have to ask my own questions about what would take me to an intermediate level. What would an intermediate level in the state of the art be? Can I evolve the state of the art of one? And I think the, the reason I think about this deliberately is because, um, you know, I see around me, I'm here in Silicon Valley, and I see around me um, a lot of people, well, this is true anywhere, this is not limited to this place, but, I, you know, I teach at Stanford University, and I have a lot of students who are guilty of this, and I've been guilty of this too, which is that sort of like resting on the laurels of doing something innovative for its own sake or some sort of gee whiz, new, tangled thing. People will, I can bring my musketeer to a concert ball, and people will just like, I'm plink around on it a little bit, and they'll say, like, wow, that's super cool, that's really great. But, like, you'd never, like, just go to a concert hall and plink around on your clarinet, you know? Right. It, the emphasis shouldn't be, like, look, I own this clarinet. It's like, okay, what can you do, what can you make me think and feel with this instrument? Beyond, oh, it's a new instrument. And so, you know, that's, that's where the being the worst actually kind of spurs me to try to develop the state of the art. that the Mouseketeer is the most recent instrument, which it is, it's from 2001. And that's because, and that's now 14 years ago. And, and so the, the, I realized that the project at that point was not to continue, as I had been doing throughout the 90s, to make new sound sculptures, but rather to learn how to play this one. Yeah, yeah. And so anyway, that's, that's sort of where I'm at with that. And, and, and it's a, and, and the other, there is a visual aesthetic about it with these, like, you know, there's a certain kind of they're they're very brightly colored. They're kind of they're kind of crazy. Um, I don't know. I think they kind of like they kind of announce my personality a little bit. There's like there's rigor involved, but there's also like a lot of whimsy and lunacy. Yeah. It's ludic. You know, it's 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 attempting to rehabilitate that kind of like um, playfulness that is so obvious to children and often so lacking in adults. Yeah. So that kind of ludic quality is, I think, part of its visual aesthetic, and that's that's actually paralleled in the metaphysics of notation that you mentioned, the the graphic score, which is a 72 foot long or wide graphic score split into 12 six foot panels, and that that piece was originally commissioned from the Cantor Art Center Museum on the Stanford campus, and it was up for a year or about 11 and a half months or so, and it was it was experienced as visual art all week long, but 
on Fridays from noon till one, various players would come in and interpret the score, for which I I provide no instruction whatsoever. So it's a bunch of just really weird glyphs. Again, taking some of the aesthetic of the three-dimensional space of the sound sculpture kind of squashed onto the surface of the two-dimensional page. And, you know, players have to come up with a way of playing it. And what's interesting is that if I, in my mind, squashed the sound sculpture onto the page to come up with, arrive at these kinds of weird, peculiar cartouches and geometries and weird pictographs, you, struggling with that score, decided to, um, it's interesting for me to hear your, your, your solution to your struggle with that score was to, in a sense, expand the score back into the realm of a three-dimensional, to actually build an instrument, yeah. which somehow would be a suitable one for you to be like kind of expressively engaged with the, with the score. Yeah, that's, that's how I felt uh, the only way I could respond to it, really. Um, I tried first just my snare drum and, and you know, lots of different implements. Uh, you know, I tried that first. I thought, well, one instrument, but many different sounds from this one thing and responding to the shapes that I saw, you know. Um, but then what's really curious is when I when I did sort of make the decision that, okay, I need to really be more creative with my response to this. I need to invent something to to for this invented sort of notation. What's really interesting, I ended up playing this piece with my wife, Amanda, who's a trumpeter, and she just plays the trumpet. And so, you know, she does she's not going to build an instrument. She plays the trumpet. And so to see how she sort of responded to the score was very interesting. You know, she sort of described to me how she was thinking about, well, when this shape comes up, I do this, and that means to do this. And she had a whole system that she had created to respond to the score, which worked perfectly well with with mine. It was just a fascinating and unique process that we don't ever get to, you know, or rarely get to experience as musicians, this sort of creative response. You know, I think Herbert Brun that said uh, that I'm trying to think of the term coiners, right? Creative interpreters or composing interpreters. That's what a coiner is. And uh, I felt very much like that with this with this score as well. I was sort of welcomed into the the creative uh, part of the music making. Well, I'm, I'm glad to hear that, and I and I and I really appreciate your well. But I've heard one live performance of you, and I was just in that. It was so cool. You know, but I would say that um, your your response that necessitated the building of an instrument, I wouldn't call intrinsically more creative than hers on her traditional no. instrument, and I wouldn't think of hers, of course, as less. And I know you're not you're not in any way implying that. No, 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 I'm, not at all. But 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 I but I think that instead, what we could what we could um, tease out of this experience that is like inherent just within your duo, is that some people, in order to be creative, need to destabilize their sort of environment by creating something alien. And in this case, for you, it was, you know, the snare drum. You could, you could make a rendering on the snare drum. Within your duo, what you can see is that, um, for you, you required a kind of um, alien, an engagement with something alien. In this case, it was building a new instrument that was foreign to you, whereas Amanda was able to create a creative response with a familiar system by using the instrument that was familiar to her. And I think that that might be something that we can notice in all sorts of creative endeavors, that there are times where, as a practitioner of whatever, we need to destabilize our environment. And then there are other times where 
we need to rely on the traditions and agency and wisdom inherent in something that is mostly familiar. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And, and I think for me, you just personally in responding to this score, I think I also want, I mean, I wanted the challenge of, of making the instrument. I, I certainly could have crafted a performance on the snare drum, and, and I still might do that. Uh, but but I just, I felt like I, I wanted to do something more. You know, I wanted to do a, a, a bigger challenge. And I'm, and, I'm, and I'm glad that you did. I mean, I would be happy to hear you play that piece on snare drum, but I'm especially delighted by what you did because the, the instrument you built is super cool. I mean, it just sounds amazing. And I'd never thought of using clock parts, but I mean, yeah, they're really, they sound fantastic. So I'm, and I'm, and I'm, and I, I can't imagine that you're going to mothball that instrument now. Oh no, no, it's <laughs> it's a it's a staple now, and now I now I need to create a you know whole repertoire for this instrument now. So, um, exactly. yeah, it's just just beginning the journey for me on that. So, cool. Okay, um, so let's talk about uh, what's going on now. What what things are you working on currently? You've got some new music that you're writing, or I, we just, we talked off the air here about your uh, trip to Australia recently. Anything that, in the works that you'd like to talk about? I just finished a, a the most recently completed piece is a, um, a string quartet for the Kronos Quartet, and it's, um, it's a piece for their children's concert coming up in May, and um, they do, I mean, which I think is a really super cool and inspired thing that they do, that they're dedicated to these children's concerts. And I remember I took my daughter Charlotte to one, you know, when she was quite young, and it was just, you know, what a great experience it was. And so I'm, like, really flattered to be invited to write something for their concert. And um, and so it's a piece that, it's a very simple piece that that is, uh, that is about a minute-long theme or a, a kind of, uh, I guess we call it a theme, for string quartet, that's actually pretty gritty modernist writing, um, and it's repeated five times. But on every repetition, one player is removed from the quartet and replaces his or her part with a series of hand gestures that are synchronized rhythmically to the instrumental part that he or she was just playing. Hmm. So after the first minute, the first violinist uh, switches. You know, the, the theme is reprised and immediately. But the first violinist has set down his violin and then plays these hand gestures. And then on the second, on the next, on the third time, which is to say the second rep- the second time it's, it, um, it's repeated. That doesn't make sense. Anyway, the third time it's heard, mm-hmm. um, two, the, the, two, the two violinists are doing hand gestures. And on the fourth time, it's everybody is doing hand gestures except the cellist who's still playing her part. And then finally, the fifth section, the... Uh, all four players are just doing the hand gestures, which has replaced the instrumental sound. So it's in a sense a, a little bit about memory, because it's a piece in which you know you can, in a sense, you're invited to hear the sounds you've just heard, but um, as replaced by these sort of visual instigations. And it's also a piece in which the form I think is very, very simple and very, very clear. An adult and a, and a child alike can, can can figure out what's going on. And the other thing is that, you know, it's got this kind of gritty uh, sort of modernist thing going on and this childlike playfulness. And so in that regard, I, I, I'm going to re- – that, that was that was a sort of part of the gig for me. I wanted to write a piece that could be at once engaging for an adult uh, audience 
and uh, child, the children sort of like scene as well. So as a consequence, the piece is called Darmstadt Kindergarten, which <laughs> I'm hoping sort of like and, and brings the two together. Great. So that's the most recent piece. Okay. Up. And when is that performance uh, happening? That's going to be Mother's Day, which I think is May 10th. Okay. And it's going to be at uh, SF Jazz. Um, the, the sort of fairly new, I guess we can't say new anymore, but it still feels new, um, incredible uh, venue in downtown San Francisco. Okay, great. So that's going to be there. And then and then I'm doing a piece, a new piece I'm finishing up uh, actually literally this weekend um, for the Spoleto Fe- Festival in Charleston, South Carolina. It's mm-hmm. a commission from Spoleto um, that's for singer and improvising singer and an instrumental septet of um, oboe, clarinet, piano, violin, viola, cello, and contrabass, and I'll be conducting that. So that's what we're doing. Great. Well, uh, we're just about out of time here on the show. I always like to close out and end the show by getting some advice or wisdom on living and sustaining a creative life. So anything that you would like to say about living a creative life and uh, words of advice you have maybe for young composers or other creatives that are that are on the path i would say you know just pursue the work that's meaningful to you and i would amplify that by saying because you might die tomorrow i mean so <laughs> you, you know <laughs> let's just let's just assume you're going to get hit by a bus next week you know so like Will you have spent that this week doing work that's interesting and meaningful to you? I would say, to paraphrase something that George Lewis told me once, and he's a hero of mine, he once said something to this effect. Some people work very, very hard at their own thing. They've got this vision, this weird, idiosyncratic, artistic thing that they want to pursue, and they just work at it tirelessly, day in and day out, year in and year out, decade after decade. And they produce this amazing repertoire of material that is the consequence of this obsession, this fetish, if you will, of this, towards this particular vision that they have. And they do this in obscurity. Nobody notices them. They die. Centuries go by, millennia go by, nobody notices them. The entire work is lost to the sands of time. But he says, this is a life that is worth living. This is a life and art that is still worth living. And then he says, other people work year in and year out at their thing. They develop their thing. They work at it. They discipline. They they develop this whole thing. They come up with this body of work. Nobody notices. They die. And centuries later, somebody discovers it. And they say, wow, this is really cool. Look what this person did. And we are the beneficiaries of this person having pursued this thing. And he said, this is a life that's worth living. This is a life in art that is absolutely admirable and worth living. This is meaningful to this artist. Other people pursue their thing year in and year out, decade after decade. And in the twilight years of their life, in the sort of the, 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 their, last, their last sort of like senior years, to 
society figures out what they're doing and celebrates them, and they have retrospectives at Lincoln Center, and they win a MacArthur Genius Prize or whatever. This is a life that's worth living. And for very, very few people, they work at their thing year in and year out, and then in sort of the middle of their life, in mid-career, they actually have a career, and people celebrate it and know them and, and pay them to do what they do. And he's endures that this is a life in the arts that's worth living. But the whole point is you're not a candidate for any of these outcomes, all of which are fine. You're not a candidate for any of these outcomes unless you have this thing you're obsessed with and you're doing it and you're, you know, you're just exploring it and working at it. So do your thing and don't worry about what other people think. Great. I guess I'll close with a, a quote, a, fav- a favorite quote from Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. He once said, Critics kind, never mind. Critics flatter, doesn't matter. Critics blame, all the same. Do your best, damn the rest. <laughs> Terrific, Mark. Thank you so much for being on the show. Okay, great. I hope it was um, not too disappointing. <laughs> it was great, really. Thank you so much. And with that, we conclude this episode of Standing in the Stream, Conversations with Creatives. Again, I'm your host, John Lane. You can follow me on Twitter, at ThatJohnLane. You can find the show links and show notes on my website, john-lane.com, and follow the show on Facebook. Simply search for Standing in the Stream. Thanks to Danny Clay for our theme music, You can find him online at dclaymusic.com. I'll be back next time for more conversations with creatives. Thanks for listening.